and it gets to a point where you can kind of like predict the beats. It's like, okay, this is the Japanese girlfriend or boyfriend phase. This is the frustrated about being complimented on your Japanese ability phase. This is the, oh, I can't believe they're treating me like this phase. This is the, they wouldn't rent me an apartment phase. It, it's... Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Kodakara Podcast. This week, we talked to Bobby Judo, who you may know from his popular YouTube channel, or maybe you've heard about him on his amazing podcast, Japan by River Cruise, or even see him on Japanese TV. But today, we chat about his time in Japan, some behind the scenes of some of his TV projects, as well as how he got into stand-up comedy, alongside some additional banter here and there and his amazing jokes. But... Real quick, guys, I also want to thank all of you for helping us reach a huge milestone of 500 subscribers on YouTube. We're extremely grateful for all of your support thus far in the Korekara podcast journey. You made it so fun for us to make these podcasts, and here's to hitting our next goal of 1,000 subscribers and making many, many more podcasts. So if you guys want to support us, you can always check out our Patreon for bonus clips. And if you're listening on YouTube, a like and subscribe go a long way. And as always, guys, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Kodakata Podcast. My name is Raza, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric. We talk to people of all types of backgrounds about their lives in Japan, studying Japanese, or even tips and tricks on how to learn the language. This week, we're joined by a very special guest in Bobby Judo. Yeah, Bobby Judo has been living in Japan for over 15 years now, and I first found out about Bobby Judo through his YouTube channel when I first started learning Japanese. And he used to make a lot of videos about Japan and, or like social commentary in Japanese, as well as teaching some Japanese here and there. And since then, he's done stand-up, been on TV a lot, and now has a podcast called Japan by River Cruise. And today, we wanted to get a closer look of his history of Japan and Japanese. But before we get into that, Bobby, can you give us a quick background of who you are and where you're at today? Yeah, sure. Uh, first off, let me say thanks for inviting me on the show. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the introduction. Uh, as you said, my name is Bobby Judo. I've been in Japan for, this is my 15th year. Came over in 2006. I came over, uh, as a lot of people do, on the JET program. I was an ALT in Saga Prefecture for a total of three years. Uh, originally from Florida. I uh, was in Florida for 21 years. I got kind of sick of it. I thought, you know, it's, summers are too hot. There's too many old people and there's Disney shit everywhere. So I thought I'd like to move to Japan. Um Little little joke there. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I came over in uh, in 2006 and uh, started as an ALT. And in my third year uh, doing the ALT stuff, I started YouTubing. My YouTube channel got some attention. Uh, I did a lot of it in Japanese for uh, a Japanese audience. And um, it got some attention from local TV stations who uh, wanted to see if I could come on and do some work with them. And it kind of took off from there. I moved to uh, work in Fukuoka as well and kind of slowly built it up to, to – uh, I was doing more national stuff regularly pre-COVID and it's kind of uh, gotten limited to local again since. But uh, it's been a total of about 10 years that I've been on TV now and uh, it's been an interesting experience. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess now we can do like a quick rewind here and like into how you actually got to the place, I guess the other place that has a bunch of old people and Disney. (laughs) 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 Um, And where the summers are brutal. And and the summers are brutal, classic. It's like you never really moved, actually, just the the Asian Slightly less alligators over here. Oh, yeah. And iguanas, right? (laughs) No no iguanas (laughs) over here. Yeah, luckily it can have the gardens. The gardens are all good over there. It won't get yeah. sullied by any of those iguanas. By the by, the iguanas that freeze and fall out of trees in the winter time. <laughs> I, I've never actually seen that, and I don't know if I want to. <laughs> uh, it's uh, in Florida. It got to be got to be a problem a couple of years just because we had some real hard cold snaps in winter, and iguanas are. Uh, what are they? Reptiles are cold-blooded, right? Yeah, yeah. So if they're not getting enough sun, if they're not getting enough ambient heat, uh, they can slow down to the point where they kind of freeze in place. And iguanas were falling out of trees, uh, and particularly cold winters in Florida. Uh, that is not necessarily the reason I wanted to leave Florida. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why don't we talk about that then? What, what actually got you into Japan? Because I mean, again, you're out here in florida right it's not the yeah. it's not the first place you think about when you're thinking about oh how, how do we get to japan you know so yeah how, how do we kind of go from bobby judo in florida to japan here uh well i i always wanted to travel i always wanted to kind of get out and see as much of the world as i could uh my father was a um long distance truck driver and he, he wasn't like gone most of most of the time he'd, he'd take like longer overnight trips every once in a while but usually he was home uh, in the evenings uh, and on the weekends. But because he did so much traveling for his job, he never wanted to go anywhere. So our family trips were, I uh, would go visit you know, relatives within driving distance or within a couple of days, and we never left the States. And so when I was younger, I always kind of thought, when I get old enough to travel on my own, I want to see as many places as I can. And uh, when I started uh, my college career, I became aware of the JET program. I'd heard about it somewhere. And I think most... Most uh, Americans who kind of are like looking at other countries but still don't know much about other countries just kind of have this image of Japan as uh, a very Orientalist image of Japan as this like magical place or this mysterious place. And and I think I'd, I'd done a lot of reading about Zen Buddhism. Um, I think I, I liked Japanese food. I started eating sushi uh, in Florida. There's a lot of, of decent sushi uh, by American standards. And so I had all of these kind of like little touchstones uh, to Japan that I thought were interesting that I thought I'd like to pursue. And my university offered a Japanese class. And one of the requirements for uh, a Bachelor of the Arts was taking a year in some language. And so I started taking Japanese in university and I found it really challenging and really rewarding. I liked it a lot. And it kind of... uh, kind of pushed me further along that path of, you know, trying to get to this country that I expected to be a completely different world from anything that I'd ever experienced. And it was it was like, if you want to get out and see the world, why don't you start on the opposite side of the world with as different of a place as you could find? Um, and And I guess that's why I decided to apply for JET. Yeah, I mean expected keyword there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Expected, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I, real quick before we get into your jet, I kind of want to highlight a, a kind of a funny story here because the first time we actually got into contact, right, Bobby was through Twitter, and we were kind of going back and forth on how um, we really enjoyed your podcast, and um, you had actually went and looked at one of our 
previous podcast where we had a Jet yeah. ALT on, and you you had a yeah. quite a quite a funny reaction to that one. I yeah, I hope I hope I wasn't uh, offending anybody. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we do on our podcast, I mean, we're comedians. We come from a stand up comedy background. Um, in particular, I, I really got into uh, roasting and like the Tokyo roast battle or the Your Hood's a Joke roast battles. Um, and I think I was getting ready to do a battle. And when I'm writing jokes for roast mode, I have to kind of check myself because I, I'll realize that I'm being mean and making like mean jokes just because my brain is in mean joke mode. But I think I had listened to an episode where you announced that maybe the next episode you were going to be interviewing somebody who was a three-year jet veteran right. and getting their perspective on like life in Japan. And I retweeted that, kind of like sharing the episode link. And I think I made some joke about I couldn't wait to hear their thoughts on uh, being complimented on chopsticks. <laughs> just kind of like <laughs> just one of these like very, very uh, tropey things that, you know, uh, people in their first five years in Japan struggle with. And when you're here, when it's your first year, your second year, I think everybody goes through these kind of honeymoon phases, culture shock phases, and the same things start to bother you. But when you've been here for 15 years, you've seen so many people. You've been through that. And you've been through it a couple of times because culture shock comes in waves, right? So you've had your like angry or frustrated with Japan phases three or four times. And every other foreigner you know, you've seen them go through those phases as well. And it gets to a point where you can kind of like predict the beats. It's like, okay, this is the Japanese girlfriend or boyfriend phase. This is the frustrated about being complimented on your Japanese ability phase. This is the, oh, I can't believe they're treating me like this phase. This is the, they wouldn't rent me an apartment phase. It, <laughs> some, some of these are more severe than others, but you get to recognize them. And, and I think... Um, it would be nice if the if kind of like the senpais in the uh, the immigrant Japan community here um, were more of like a kind resource. But I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cynicism and and a lot of people get jaded really quickly. So instead of going like, oh, I remember what it was like to go through that, it's very easy to be like, ah, fucking newbies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was even funnier to me was um, when you retweeted that, there, there, we had a thumbnail of the, of the guy and his, his like face said it all. Like it encapsulated everything you said in that tweet. Scarred. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing about parody or, or roast jokes. I mean, they have to be true on a certain level true, uh, true. or they don't work. And... I, I didn't mean it in a mean-spirited way. It was just something that, like, I think it's something that everybody can relate to. And when you're on the other side of it, you can kind of look back and go, oh, I used to be that guy. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we love it here at Kodakara. And we're, we're actually planning on opening our own roast battle as a, <laughs> as a subsidiary, you know, but we'll get to that when it comes, you know. But anyway. Oh, yeah. you guys got to have us on. Uh, Ali and I have been talking about... Um, about doing some sort of podcast roast oh. competition, we really wanna we really wanna roast the Combini boys. Oh, I mean, bring us in there. We're we're always down to roast. We just haven't gotten too much. We're we're out here talking about people's Japanese and how to improve. We can't just be like because we're all about the positivity when it comes to learning yeah. languages, you know. But I mean, yeah. we really even wanted to well, roast some people. Well, on that point, if you don't mind me jumping in with another joke, uh, one of my favorite uh, Japanese language learning jokes is that to really kind of truly comprehend Japanese on a native level, you guys know it requires those three things, right? Hiragana, katakana, and condescension to foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's some facts right there. 
<laughs> as spoken from a 15-year Japan veteran. Yeah. Have you ever went and like roasted like a Japanese person when if they like said you're you're good at using chopsticks or Nihongo Jozu? Um, not in person. I, th- I think maybe in my first handful of years, I might have tried. I, I have a couple of friends um, who have been here longer than me or, and are still kind of like in that phase where they get these angry reactions where somebody says, can you eat rice? And their <laughs> instinct is to go, can you eat bread? But but the thing is, in an in-person situation with the average Japanese person who you don't know so well, they don't read that as sarcasm right. or aggression or having the joke turned around on them. They just read it as sincere. And so you know, someone says, can you use chopsticks? And you go, can you use a fork and knife? And they'll go, yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> and they'll just answer it honestly. Um, but I think those kinds of tropes do make for really, really good uh, comedy. And I think they make for better comedy when you can turn them around and kind of use them as self-reflection instead of using them to attack the Japanese culture. Um, one of my one of the first jokes I wrote when I started doing Japan-related comedy was about those questions. You know, I, I've been here for so long that Japanese people would go, can you use chopsticks? Can you eat sushi? Uh, do you take off your shoes when you go in the house? And I'd go, guys, the, I'm so bored of these questions. You know, these are so shallow, such vapid, such boring questions. Get some better questions. And they would come back and go, hey, is it true that half of Americans don't believe in evolution and you don't have universal health care? And how come your cops keep shooting black people? And I would be like, look, look, look. First of all, some of us can use chopsticks. <laughs> Oh my god, I've I've never felt I've never related to jokes on this level before. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean for real. And I mean quickly going back to the the Combini boys here. I, I remember you guys were kind of calling them out too on, on Twitter and I, I was thinking yeah. to myself, like, how are you gonna have a whole podcast? on combinis here i mean i understand i understand the vibe that i look at the amount of episodes they've had on them like how do you yeah. not run out of things to say about the combini oh man well so here's the thing um half of half of uh our kind of needling them on twitter and going after them on twitter is jealousy because <laughs> they they run a more successful twitter account than we do and their growth is phenomenal right and and they really are putting putting out something that is consistently relatable oh and yeah. It's something that everybody has an opinion on. So it's really easy to get involved with their content. I personally don't think it's easy enough to get involved with it so much that I'd want to listen to one full show about it, let alone a week, a weekly show about it. <laughs> but um, but the joke that Ali and I were kind of shopping around for a potential roast joke was, do you know those guys that move to Japan and make Japan their entire personality? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the Kombini boys look at those guys and go, here, hold my strong zero. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna narrow the focus even further to this one aspect of japan and i've been here 15 years i've had a lot of different flavors of fami chicky but i've never met a fami chicky flavored person and i think that's what the kombini <laughs> boys are <laughs> I, I will say that um all of the interactions that we've had with the kombini boys uh have been like good natured and respectful and like they'll they'll like tease us back sometimes i kind of wish they would get into it a little bit more because it becomes more engaging and it's uh it doesn't feel so much like we're just being jerks right (laughs) but um 
but but this, at the same time, there's a handful of podcasts or a handful of like expat Japan content out there that's、mm. so focused around these specific aspects of Japanese culture or food culture. And Strong Zero is one of them. And our our logo for our podcast is a parody of the Strong Zero can. But Ali and I don't drink Strong Zeros. Like I've 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 had one once and was like, this is this this is not for me. And if it was, maybe I was an alcoholic. <laughs> Um, but but I think I think、um, one thing that that would make the Japan the one thing that would make the Japan kind of like Twitter sphere, vlogosphere, and and podcast sphere more interesting is if is if people kind of use Japan as a backdrop for what they wanted to talk about instead of just as the sole focus. And I think, like you guys, are focused on on like living in Japan and language learning in Japan and kind of like tips and advice and hearing from people who might have something that you could use as a reference to apply to your life in Japan. And I think a lot of shows don't necessarily have anything beyond just introducing something Japanese or just talking about something、uh, Japanese. And if you don't have that, I don't know if you're necessarily a unique voice. I mean, there's a lot of content. In that same vein, right, right. I mean, I feel like we we definitely got to spice it up a bit. I mean, I really love the jazz between you and the Kombini boys. We got to get some podcast beef going on here. That's Japan boys here. We need to <laughs> we we need to start something. I mean, you you you've seen all the the big YouTubers go at it. Why why, why can't we why can't we beef with、uh, the people too, man? In a, in a well, rest, nice and respectful、yeah. way, of course. That's the thing. I I don't. So I was a I I guess I I started as a J vlogger and then、right. I transitioned from J vlogging into Japan facing YouTubing and so I think halfway through I I stopped doing so much like this is what life in Japan is like stuff this is Japanese learning stuff and I started doing more、uh, as you mentioned in the intro kind of like social issues or、mm-hmm. you know explaining the foreign point of view to a Japanese audience and. To be a hundred percent honest, I never watched a lot of the other J vloggers, and I didn't follow、um, a lot of their content. I was friends with a lot of them, and we worked together sometimes. But I, I never really watched, and I don't necessarily listen to a lot of other Japan podcasts. And I think it's for exactly the reasons I was mentioning before. I'm not the audience for them. The audience for those podcasts is for people who want to move here or people who are curious about here. The 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 audience for J vlogging is people who are interested in Japan and don't know much about it. And the kind of content that I like and that I'm interested in is it's okay if it has a Japan angle, but but I, I'm not necessarily going to be entertained by you know content about、uh, the first two years on Jet or content about you know convenience stores and and Jido Hambaiki. So, I think there's a huge audience. I mean, there's a lot of people who make that content and are very, very successful with it. But the reason that I, I never really followed much of it is because it's not directed at me. Right, right. I mean, I completely understand, especially coming from、uh, podcast veterans here of hearing a couple hundred jet stories ourselves.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah the that's that's. That's not to say it's not valuable, and、oh, that's not to say、sure. there's not a huge audience for it.、Um, it's just, it's just, yeah,、uh, it's just for a different audience. Hundred percent agree. I mean, yeah, I mean, from our experience, like especially like you're saying, the audience for 
those kind of, like the people who are very interested in going to Japan. There are always nuggets in there. I mean, there's always a lot of overlap between these stories, which is something that we've come to see, which is right, right. Yeah, but I, I feel like everyone always has their unique experiences, which is always great to see. And that's why I guess, like over here, at least on our podcast, we love just go- going beyond just jets, you know, because there's so much stuff with you. You could be anything in any country, you know, and just yeah. kind of hearing. That I mean, it just ha- so happens that we're talking about people in Japan, but they yeah. have their own unique experiences and people who are kind of interested in kind of pursuing pursuing anything they want. We kind of want to have a po- a platform where everyone, regardless of opportunity that they want to pursue, can kind of hear a little something from that kind of perspective. Yeah. I think you guys do a really good job of that. I, um, I've checked through your uh, YouTube content and also thumbnail game on point guys very very nice (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah like you talk to a wide variety of different kinds of people doing different kinds of things and i think having those like multiple perspectives of different kinds of people pursuing their dreams or pursuing uh, a life that's in japan while not necessarily you know 100 dependent on being in japan um is really interesting Right. I mean, I find this really funny how we're kind of going from your your history as a jet and now we're just going on this whole YouTube sphere, podcast sphere. <laughs> I, I really love it. I mean, but I, I guess how about we, we do this? Because, I mean, we've, we've all heard our fair share of jet stories, you know. What, what, what's your top three biggest gripes about being a jet during your time? How we can capsule, encapsulate it with that? Okay. Um three biggest gripes about being a jet um well there's there's i don't want to uh go back to that whole every situation is different trope but um my first two years in jet i was in uh, a school that had a huge discipline problem Uh, and it was this this really rural school out in the middle of saga prefecture in a town that's famous for seaweed farming and so it was this perfect combination of kind of like redneck farmers who are very, very rich because seaweed farming is a huge industry. And so most of the kids in the town were expected to kind of just join the family business and didn't go on to academic high schools. They went straight out of uh, middle school to seaweed farming. Um, But again, that that was a very lucrative uh, career for them. Um, I think Saga Ken Ariake Kai Nori is speaking of convenience stores. It's like it comprises 70% of the Nori that's used in convenience stores all over the country. So we had these kids who were not only interested, they were not only uninterested in learning anything, let alone English, but um, their parents spoiled them and uh, they were all kind of rough. Like, so the school had horrible academics, but had like championship winning rugby teams and uh, like judo teams. So you had all these like monster kids and their monster parents walking around fighting in the halls. And uh, I saw a kid spit in uh, the vice principal's face once. Oh, my God. And I mean, there was stuff like somebody broke out all the windows of a couple of classrooms on the second floor. Uh, Somebody got the fire hose and flooded the gym. (laughs) And so it would be like, you know, school's canceled for like a couple of days because um, (laughs) because somebody flooded the gym. It was a lot like being back in middle school in South Florida. Um, so I think my biggest gripe was that there was no real system, even though, you know, it didn't matter that I was an ALT there. I wasn't doing any work. I wasn't teaching. Um, but because it was kind of a discipline problem school and the way the contract is set up with the board of education that they're required to supply somebody there, 
uh, when I requested for a transfer after two years, it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go somewhere else, you know, actually be an ALT. Uh, the system for getting transferred was was not great, and it was not in their interests to transfer me because that would mean they would have to bring somebody else in. And I think they thought if we just deny his transfer, he'll stick around for another year, and um, and that way we won't have to kind of get somebody else acclimated to this mess. And I feel like in that sense, um, they were more interested in just kind of like maintaining their bureaucratic relationship with the school than doing what was in the interest of the ALT, which, I mean, you can't really fault them for, but, but it was not a pleasant experience. Um, second biggest gripe with Jet, I would say it doesn't really, I mean, it does, its stated goal is, is grassroots internationalization, not English teaching, um, which is good because as an actual English teaching uh, curriculum or, or system, it doesn't do a great job. I liked my time on JET. I'm very glad I did it. Um, it it got me started on my whole life here. And I think it succeeds in a lot of the things it sets out to accomplish, uh, especially internationalization, um, if only because, you know, a significant percentage of its participants end up marrying the locals. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I think the JET program's biggest success is as a piece of PR to recruit future JETs. So I think that would be that would be my second one. Third, um, I didn't have any. I guess I didn't have any real experience with this personally, but I but I feel like um, there's not really a good framework for people who are in very difficult situations or who have something bad happen to them while on jet to uh, to address that. And there's no real system set up to advocate for those people within jet. So if somebody were to, you know, be the victim of a crime in Japan or if somebody were to be sexually assaulted or somebody were to be even victimized by another member of the JET program, um, there's not, again, it's not really in the JET program's interest to deal with that in a way that's best for the person who is victimized. It's better for them to kind of like sweep everything under the rug in a way that, that maintains the system. So I wish there was a little bit more accountability uh, in the rare instances, in the few instances where problems do occur. So I guess those would be my three. I see. I mean, I just want to quickly highlight how you kind of went back on like, oh, yeah, no experience is the same. Then you just go on and say, oh, kids are breaking all the windows and flooding the Complete. I, I, I didn't know if you're talking about Florida or Japan. It really goes back to the, yeah. the summers. Yeah. Disneyland yeah, and yeah, old people. The uh, the biggest the biggest difference between middle school in Florida and middle school in Kawasoe, where I was, is that uh, in Kawasoe, I was not the one getting beat up. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving up. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> this, I, I can just imagine you like taking one of those kids and like, yeah, you know, back in my day, I was the, I was you, I was in your place, and you know what, you just gotta know that. You suck, yeah. man. And I'm I'm at the top now, boys. <laughs> we combini now. <laughs> I, I I lucked out, man, because I think they assume that Westerners are tough. Like they assume that I'm. I mean, I'm tall. Uh, I'm I'm not super strong, but I, but I'm tall, and I look like what they think like a Disney prince or like a like an action hero looks like. And so they wouldn't. They would assume that it was better to not mess with me. And there was one time when. One of the rugby kids who was one of the kind of like worst behaved just as a joke came into the staff room and took my jacket and was wearing my jacket 
around in the hall. And I got so mad and I went to kind of like grab it off of his shoulders. And for a second, he looked like he was about to fight me. And I got terrified because he was a lot bigger than me and I can't fight for <laughs> shit. <laughs> but I didn't show it. And he kind of um, he, he kind of like was like, well, maybe maybe I should let this one go because I don't this guy's an unknown quantity. Uh, but had he had he pressed the issue, uh, it could have been very bad for me. I guess that's another lesson learned for everyone who's kind of interested in going to Japan. Um, yeah. yeah, you guys can fight whoever the fuck you want. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just playing. Don't 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 take that advice at all. No, well, you can you can become kind of a, a different person than than you used to be, at least on a very superficial level, because nobody knows who you are, and there's all this image that gets projected onto foreigners, uh, whether it's you know good at sports or or attractive, or stronger, or this or that. But um, but I, I, I did have a couple experiences where that worked to my benefit. Uh, for a little while, my third year, I, I bought a motorcycle, and I would commute to school by motorcycle, and had a full-face helmet. And I was doing that thing that people do on motorcycles here, where they pass on the side, and a guy driving didn't see me passing on the side, and he oh, started man. to merge, even though I was on the side. And I was like, oh, shit, this guy's going to hit me. And I, I sped up to get away from it, and I figured if I can speed up, I'll be out in front of him before he merges all the way. And I didn't quite make it, and my handlebar hit his side view mirror, and oh, then wow. he swerved back, and I managed to get in front of him, and we both kind of stopped. And he got out of his car, and he was this young sagyogi. He was wearing, like, construction clothes, and he, he had, like, dyed brown hair, um, so kind of like a, kind of like a Yankee-style character. Uh, that you'd see in like like a tough guy manga or something like that. And so the handlebar had hit the mirror, but it didn't break it and it didn't leave any marks on his car. And but but from his point of view, I had hit him. From my point of view, I was there in on the side and he, he almost merged into me. And it could have been much, much worse. So both of our blood was up. And he right. gets out of his car and he comes walking around and he he's, he's like yelling and his face is bright red. And I forget exactly what he said, but he used the word butskatazo or something, butskataze or something like that. Like, oh my god, Like really, really angry, like spittle flying out of his mouth. And as he's saying it, I take off my full face helmet and for the first time he sees that I'm a foreigner and I just kind of looked back at him and I went, Daiga, which is like a like a localized way of saying who hit who? And he goes, Ah, ah, Got back in his car, drove away. So you you can kind of like assume a different persona to a certain extent. You, it doesn't change who you are inside, but you can get away with more than you might have been able to back home where people people don't extend you that credit. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like an 80s manga met like Marvel Comics halfway through right there. <laughs> <laughs> Come in, I am Iron Man. He's like, oh, my bad, man. I don't want to mess with you at all. <laughs> Did you ever pull the, the gaijin pass and pretend you didn't speak any Japanese if you got in trouble or something? Uh, yeah, early on. I think I, I, I'd done that a couple of times. Um, I think my I considered using it once or twice. Um, once when I got stopped for a speeding ticket, but then I remembered that I'd like just recently seen on TV... They'd done like an expose on foreigners who do that. And this woman who like tried to pretend she didn't speak any Japanese until the guy was not going to let her off. And then she got like really angry at him in Japanese. And also starting in my third year here, I started to do TV work. And so it was like never I was never quite confident 
what I could get away with because there was always a chance that somebody had seen me on TV. And that really kind of Mm -hmm. changed how I interacted with Japanese people on a daily basis. We talked a little bit about going through those angry phases where you get upset with people like staring at you or somebody comes up and starts a conversation with you when you're not in the mood to have a conversation with a stranger. And I lost the ability to go like, what are you looking at when I was in a bad mood? Or I lost the ability to just kind of like, kind of go like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't know. You leave me alone. Because I never knew whether or not it was somebody who recognized me from TV or if they were just staring at me because I was a foreigner. Man, yeah, I, I can't even imagine how that would even be like. You just kind of lose your ability to use the Gaijin pass at all, really. I yeah. mean, oh, man. But I mean, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because you got to be the local kind of Bobby Flay Iron Chef, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I started, um, so my, my YouTube channel, one of the first things that I did was uh, uh, cooking lessons. And I would cook kind of like uh, either Japanese recipes or, or recipes that I'd picked up in Japan or recipes from back home. I think I did like lasagna or like Oreo cheesecake or things like that. But kind of as a way to help myself study Japanese, I would you know do the things that I enjoyed doing and try to do them in Japanese and create content uh, around them in Japanese to make myself, you know, practice the grammar, practice the vocab. Um, And so I started putting up these cooking lessons on YouTube. And the YouTube channel in general got a lot more attention than I expected it to. And the local TV station contacted me and asked if I would come on as as a guest on their cooking segment and to teach them an American recipe. And uh, that was the first time that I got on the TV. And from there, I was kind of like, this is something that that I'd like to make a career out of. And I asked the TV station if I could do more for them. They started using me as a, as a reporter here and there. And then after about half a year of that, I approached them with an idea for doing this kind of a delivery kitchen segment, which isn't, it's not a, a hugely original idea in Japan. It's just the idea of going to a local farm and seeing what they grow and bringing all your gear with you and then cooking something uh, using what they grow at the farm. And I've been doing that for 10 years now. I do that every Tuesday. Wow. That, that, uh, those are the kind of things that I always find really interesting. It's like, I remember back in the day, I'd go into Food Network and I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool to watch. I had known, I, actually, I was taking a cooking class back in sixth grade. Shout out me. Um, but that was the <laughs> peak of my cooking career right there. Um, but I would be, I'd see these people and be like, oh my God, this is like actually crazy. I actually saw one of your videos, funnily enough. I didn't know what I was watching because I was like way beyond like me getting interested in Japan at all. I was like, what is happening? This is cool though. Like, because I was just watching a bunch of food videos. But I mean, that's, that's super interesting. And I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you was, what was the first dish that they asked you to make? Because you mentioned that they wanted to have it be like an American dish, right? Yeah. So w- yeah. was it something like very stereotypical or w- did you put some spice onto it? I don't I don't know. Uh, so the first thing I ever cooked on TV was stuffed pork chops. Okay, okay. And there's a really easy way to, um, to make stuffed pork chops with uh, the roast katsu cut of pork that they, that they sell here for like, you know, katsudon or something like that. But um, all you do is butterfly that, cut it through almost all the way to the end so you can kind of spread it open. And then breadcrumbs are the easiest thing in the world to make. You just saute chopped up vegetables, add some chicken broth, add some butter, and then mix in breadcrumbs. You can mix in you know, the panko that they sell in Japan until it gets mushy and soft like stuffing. And just stuff that into the pork chop with a, with a little bit of cheese on top and fold it back closed. Put some uh, 
some katakuriko, some like potato starch or corn starch on the outside so it gets crisp and just fry both sides just like a pork chop. You can really see the experience there. You got me. You could you could have told me anything there. I would have. I'm I'm hungry now. (laughs) That that was. Oh man, that sounds that sounds really good. I mean, I was thinking like, oh, what if they just made Bobby just cook a hamburger just (laughs) every week, hamburger every week. Oh man, go through the the in and out menu. You got like two weeks right there. (laughs) Well. You'd be surprised, like like some weeks when I when I'm feeling kind of drained, when like there's nothing left in the in the hikidashi in my repart in my repertory, um, uh-huh. I I pull out like some super basic stuff, you know, like microwave baked potato or or, uh, <laughs> or what was I made? Um, I think like a couple times I've made a grilled cheese sandwich, which is different different like uh, filling inside. But uh-huh. it's still something that you know, grilled cheese sandwiches in Japan, the last like two, three years just started to catch on to the point where there's like trendy cafes selling grilled cheese sandwiches. So, uh, you know, the, um, you know, like biscuits and gravy or like yeah, the McDonald's yeah. biscuit, mm-hmm. they sell like a breakfast biscuit. Uh, right. The only other place in Japan where you can get like a similar biscuit like that, like an American style country breakfast biscuit is Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and... Those are the easiest things in the world to make. Like they're super simple to make. They're probably right. the easiest bread you can bake. And mm. uh, just just a, a month ago, I was like, oh, I've never made this on TV. And Japanese people would be surprised to hear that you could make it so easily in your house. And so I just made biscuits for one show. And then another show asked me to come on and teach them the recipe. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you like went and inspired one Japanese person to like devote their life to making biscuits. You know how you have like the cinnamon dents everywhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be that'll be the next uh, Japanese big Instagram cooking trend. Like, <laughs> hashtag biscetto. <laughs> It's going to be one of those things where like people like in America and whatnot are going to go and see this and be like, what is going on in Japan? Like, yeah, what are they doing over there? My favorite is the phenomenon where something comes over from America and the expat community here doesn't know that it's American and just assume it's a crazy Japanese thing. <laughs> like uh, the most recent one was Egg Slut. Did you guys see any oh, of the, uh, oh, the yeah, Egg yeah. Slut stuff? That's a California place, right? It is yeah. a California place, yeah. But you have all these foreigners seeing like this American shop called Egg Slut in uh, in Tokyo, and they assume it's like some crazy Japanese English <laughs> like <a> translation <laughs> error. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah, it, it was actually them living under the rock all along. Unfortunately for them, yeah. Oh man, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's so cool though. Kind of hearing um, that you always had your kind of pantry to have your back when. <laughs> things are looking grim as long as i don't hit that point where i have to be like here's a piece of celery you put peanut butter and then raisins on it and then you've got a recipe <laughs> <laughs> i mean you had that guy pico taro do a pen pineapple apple pen so i mean i'm sure you could really do anything there <laughs> yeah turn it into like a music video or, or something it could be simple but it'll, it'll yeah. come through it'll i mean you can always go through with the remember the lunchables you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure japan has never really had that introduced to them and you got avocado toast now that's really popular yeah oh, avocado toast yeah yeah there's a i think there's somewhere in saga that started growing avocados and when, when they send me out to to do a story on that i'll <laughs> i'll break out the avocado toast <laughs> 
as mentioned on the Korekara podcast. <laughs> yeah. This is this oh, is man. very popular in America. It's a healthy, nutritious breakfast, and it's the reason millennials can't buy their own homes. <laughs> you, you just got to say that in English, and people are like, oh, eh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, dude. I mean, for real, though, I mean, hit it right on the... The nail there but i mean i i guess we we talked a lot about cooking here i mean i'm getting very hungry myself um <laughs> oh I, I we'll keep the podcast going a little bit longer you know just because you guys want to hear bobby but you right out right after this i'm gonna be eating not avocado toast i i want to save money you know um <laughs> i i i have financial needs to take care of. but anyways um <laughs> One thing, of course, in the Korakara podcast, we do talk about Japanese and your entire kind of journey with Japanese has been really amazing because of like all the hard work that you put in to kind of get here and how much you've really integrated Japanese into kind of your daily life. And when you want to get better, you go and take it, you go and like take hobbies and combine it with Japanese, like you mentioned with cooking. But Mm -hmm. one thing you also did was you started a blog, right? The, The Daily Yoji blog actually is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. What was kind of the story behind that blog coming up and how, how did it kind of help you with your Japanese? Well, um, so the daily yoji, a yoji is uh, a short for yoji jukugo, which is short for yomoji jukugo, which means uh, a compound phrase made of four characters. And uh, this is specifically like the Japanese kanji characters, but they, they tend to be idiomatic phrases that are all borrowed directly from Chinese and just to throw out a super easily accessible example, Isseki Nicho is a Yomoji Jukugo. And it's written with the characters for one stone, two birds. And it's the exact same sort of idiom or kind of proverb that we have in English, you know, kill two birds with one stone. But there's this whole world of these phrases that um, I think a lot of foreigners, when they first come across them, you might not even have realized that you've come across them. Isho Kenme, to do something as hard as you can, uh, is a Yomoji Jukugo. And to find kind of this this world, anytime you're learning a language, like learning that language's proverbs kind of makes you feel like you're getting a, a deeper cultural understanding of the language as you go. And I think Japanese people tend to be very fascinated with these. There's books about them. There's Japanese websites built about them. They come up in, in daily conversation a lot, as any idioms do, especially the more common ones. And as a foreigner, if you could slip one in somewhere, uh, Japanese people are super impressed. It's one of those things where they go, oh, my God, your Japanese is so amazing. And so as an attention-seeking narcissist, uh, <laughs> I wanted to kind of learn as much of these as I could. Um, and I had a couple of friends who were also interested in it. And so we started kind of like trying to post one a day. And... Most of the time, we stuck to uh, those those kinds of four-character phrases. Occasionally, we'd work in like different proverbs or different Japanese sayings or expressions. But um, because we already kind of had this Japanese language study blog going, when we really started getting into uh, the higher levels of the JLPT, back then it was um, uh, Nikyu and Ikyu. I think we might have started with either Sankyu. It wasn't N1 through N5 back then. But we started uh, working through the grammar points on that blog as well. I see. I mean, I, I never would have thought it would have been like something to go flex 
at people. That was the whole reason it started. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really getting me to think like, are you, are you sure you grew up in Florida? Are you sure you didn't come up from California? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's narcissists everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You can find them anywhere you go. Oh, man. Uh-huh. I mean, have, have you found narcissists in Japan? Have you any, do you have any stories about that? Because I found it's kind of pretty, it's really rare to find narcissists, like specifically Japanese narcissists, at least for the most yeah. part. Well, there's, there, there's um, a big cultural emphasis on humility and also on not standing out. But, but um, yeah, if you want to ask, uh, I think I've noticed that Japanese people will remark on this too, but a lot of times Japanese people who spend time abroad... Right. And I don't want to make it seem like it's a bigger thing than it is. Um, being a foreigner in Japan, I think you get to see different aspects of Japanese-ness than you know, the normal Japanese people do. Sometimes people are, are a little more open with you because they think you, you've got a different perspective. But uh, when you guys were here as well, I'm sure you've come across this. There are certain Japanese people who will go out of their way to make friends with foreigners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then there are certain Japanese people who will go out of their way to avoid foreigners. <laughs> That's and then, also true. And then in the middle of that is just normal people. Just normal. <laughs> and that's the majority. The majority is just normal people who don't give – don't don't care. They could talk to you. They could not talk to you. It doesn't matter if you're foreign. It doesn't matter if you're Japanese. Um but the ends of those spectrums, the people who hate foreigners uh, for whatever nationalistic reasons um, – are on one side and then the people who have an unhealthy fixation or interest in foreigners are on the other side and they're both groups that in my opinion like you do best to avoid but um of the ones who have that kind of like unhealthy fixation with uh with foreigners there are people who go abroad learn a little bit about a different culture learn a little bit of a different language and then they come back to japan and it's all about them it's not that they've gained perspective. It's not that, you know, they understand somebody else. It's all about them. And again, that's not the majority. It's an extreme faction. There are plenty of Japanese people who go abroad and come back and continue to be normal people. But there's a certain a certain genre, a certain group of people who in Japanese what they'd say is like um they came they came home, they went abroad and they grew two or three sizes. It's a shitomawari uh, okikunatta or futamawari okikunatta. Like they, they grew, their ego grew basically. And it's the people who go out of their way to work English words into a conversation when it's not necessary. Um, okay. When I was working at a restaurant, there was a customer who had gotten back. He'd, he'd stayed in California for a couple of years and he'd done truck driving between California and Mexico which is fascinating. Like, it's, like I, I would have loved to hear about his experience if he wasn't such a huge narcissist. <laughs> but, uh, but, but one of the, the things that always kind of stuck out in talking to him is, is um, he would drop English words and Spanish words at just weird times. And I think he asked me where I was from, and I said I was from Florida. And he's like, oh, you're from Florida. I love Mujica. And I kind of went, <laughs> what is Mujica. And he was like, you know, Mujica. Like, like, and he started like miming, like playing a guitar. And I was like, oh, is this the name of a band from Florida? Or it's like something that I'm unaware of? And he's like, no, 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 you know, like ongaku, but in Spangle. And he just <laughs> wanted to show me that he knew the word music in Spanish. 
which I never would have guessed because why would you do that? Yeah. I mean, to to compare narcissistic size, you should have been like, oh, I know how to say Bobby Judo in Spanish. Papi Chulo. <laughs> <laughs> You've done your research. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, especially in the TV industry, um, a lot of people, one of the things that I still struggle with, uh, even after having done it for so long, is anytime I'm on a show where occasionally they don't do it these days but they used to um get all of the presenters all of the reporters they'd bring everybody into the studio for a special shoot like a new year's shoot or a big summer blowout or something like that every reporter who works their own corner on the show their own segment on the show they bring them into the studio and have these huge panels and anytime it's a huge panel of presenters and they bring in like a lot of the local yoshimoto comedians who work on the show or um or like the young women these days, it's a lot of like Instagram influencers who get like little reporter jobs on the show and it becomes this battle for camera time. It becomes this all out war for who gets the most screen time. Um, and, and there's even a phrase for that in Japanese. It's called shaku, shaku wo ku. Shaku is uh biosu. It's like seconds. It's the measurement of time of a TV show and ku is to eat it. And it's like, who's eating the most time up and, Somebody who eats a lot of time is like somebody who they want so badly to have the focus on them that you you ask them a question and they will not they won't give you the conversation back. They'll just keep talking until it's time to go to a commercial. And in some cases, this is narcissism. In some cases, it's just the nature of the industry because that's how you that's how you you know get the audience to like you. That's how you book your next job is is fighting to get time on TV where people find you interesting. Sounds like a battle royale. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I still struggle with it. Like my – part of it is, is the disadvantage of not being a native speaker. Part of it is the disadvantage of not having a 100% strong sense of whether something will be comedic or not. Um, right. My sense of humor is still not on par with a Japanese local sense of humor. So if I want to jump in and make a joke, I'm always kind of like doubting whether or not it's going to land. And so I can hold back. But I found that in those situations, I don't have to compete because at some point they'll want the foreigner's opinion. And so I can kind of just kind of like sit back and wait for the conversation to come to me instead of, you know, going after it like uh, some of the Japanese reporters have to. Oh, man, what a position to be in. The I guess the Gaijin Pass didn't leave you then. <laughs> yeah, that helps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's a really interesting kind of take on kind of like the Japanese media, though, kind of. I, I've, you, I've definitely heard about it in terms of, especially, I guess, in terms of um, auditions and idols, too. You see a lot of where if, as soon as you're not getting the spotlight, you're cut, you're done, you know. And yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really kind of because it, it also feels kind of like Japanese media is what you kind of hear and see on like the American side because of course you have to grind and go like you have to grind everywhere you are no matter where you are in the world but it seems so cutthroat in Japan in comparison like a little bit on steroids I mean yeah have have you seen like not like I guess necessarily yourself but maybe people you've worked with who just get thrown aside like real quick when it just doesn't yeah. go their way well yeah, I think that's that's 
one of the things that happens, like you said, in any TV industry anywhere, but um, even even with foreigners where, you know, you get that Gaijin pass where you can count on the fact that they're going to turn to you at some point or right. you might find it a little bit easier you know, if you want to audition for a job and they're looking for a foreigner, they they might be more ready to accept you because being a foreigner on its own sets you apart. But in that moment when they come to you and they put the camera on you and they hand you the mic, if you don't say something interesting or insightful or you don't, you you can't use the language, you can't make it worth their time, then you don't get invited back. And I mean, I've had some of those experiences myself in like the national uh, TV shows that I, I've been booked for. I've had, you know, a couple TV shows bring me on once and go, well, you didn't really shine. Or I've had a couple, uh, one, one of the TV shows had me on, I think, four or five times. And I did well in the first two. And they kind of pulled me aside and they said, you did well in these, but you need to be doing better. And it's kind of like national big leagues. And anytime the camera's on you, you need to be doing something that's going to drive ratings. And uh, And they gave me five shots and it didn't work out. And I think I see that happen to Japanese people as well. Uh, a lot of times the the women who get hired for like um, the weather channel assistant or the entertainment reporter, they hire them on a one or two year contract. And right. they usually work from the time they're like 18 to the time they're 20 or 21. And if there's not some reason after their contract is done, if they haven't, you know, accumulated a big enough fan base if they don't have like a huge Instagram following that's going to watch the show to see them on it, then they don't get renewed. And it's because if their only value is kind of being an 18-year-old girl who's cute on the show, then they can find a different 18-year-old girl who's cute on the show to do that. It's the same with foreigners. I think it's the same with Japanese presenters. Do you feel like it's it's mostly fair? Like it's based on their talent? Because I heard there's also like, like the Jimu show also kind of decides who gets famous and they... They can like yeah. make some people push them forwards. Yes, um, the big agencies have a huge hand in whose careers they want to build, especially in the idol industry or especially in like the drama acting industry. Um, and they do this in a couple ways. One way that they do this is just by um, threatening to boycott. Is is by saying you know if you don't use this person that we want you to use, we'll pull our talent for other shows. Um, and the other way that they do this is by something called barter where they'll take the famous person in their agency and they'll say, okay, you want this famous person to be on your show. We will put them on your show, but as a condition of the contract, you have to also include as a cast member this up-and-comer. And whoever it is that they want to focus on, whoever it is they want to build up next, um, they'll put them on the show. But again, once you're in the door, if you don't do something that makes it worth the TV show's time, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't work out. So I think there was a – I did a, a show for NHK uh, about writing haikus for NHK Education. And it was a two-year contract. It ended up um, being completely overhauled after one year because the guy who hosted it uh, was involved in a hit-and-run accident. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but unrelated to that, there was a major – one of these um, oneike, like uh, uh, transgender – Japanese talents. I was a transgender woman who uh, was on the show and she's already super famous. And there was a young woman in her agency who was just coming up. She was kind of more famous for being uh, like a like a, a model and a Twitch streamer. I think like a gamer. 
and they put her on the show. And I don't think that she lived up to the expectations. And so where the agency has the power to go put them on the show after a year, if that person that they put on the show hasn't done anything interesting, the TV show can go like, we did it. It's not working out. We're not reaping any benefits from from this. And the agency can't really be like, I'm sure they could, but they they I haven't seen them like put their foot down when somebody is just not capitalizing on the opportunity that they've been given. I see. W- would you say that now? Because you mentioned like Instagram followers being because I mean, obviously, the social media landscape is completely different now than when it was like, let's say 10, 20 years ago, as well as like the TV landscape. So would you say that social media has a big influence on who they're pushing now, like you mentioned for Instagram? I think the media landscape has changed a lot. And I think the new media, the new platforms that allow people to go to kind of create content and they can bring it directly to their audience has changed it a lot. And so TV has not really figured out how to capitalize on this yet. And TV's very eager, you know, even, you know, starting when Hikakin was like the big YouTuber over here, they they were like, okay, this guy clearly has an audience. Let's get him on TV. Or uh, Fuachan is the one this year. She's got a huge uh, online following. And so they're like, let's get her on TV. The problem is that TV over here hasn't figured out how to monetize their own online content. Like, you know how the late night shows in the States, everything that they do, they put the entire show online. Yeah. And in Japan, they're just struggling with figuring out how to get TV content online. And they're still making TV shows for the TV watching audience. And the TV watching audience is much, much older. And so you've got these individual performers who are these younger performers who are gaining followings on this different platform, be it Instagram or YouTube or TikTok or whatever. And TV thinks that just by having them on, they'll have crossover and they'll see a rise in rankings. And they do to a certain extent, but they're not making the most of it, I don't think. Um, But the reason that they're still succeeding kind of in following the old model is, in my opinion, for two reasons. One is because TV is still where the money is. the advertising dollars that TV in Japan generates because these older generations are still watching TV and because there's there a lot more older people and the older people have the money. That's that's why TV can become such a revenue generating thing. Uh, TV can continue to be such a revenue generating thing. And so they can afford to, you know, pay YouTubers who might be making more money doing private sponsorships um, enough money to get them to come on the show. The other thing that affects it is it's kind of like the publishing industry. Now, nowadays, anybody can self-publish a book. You know, you can type up a document and put it on Kindle. And if you have a following, you can make a lot of money doing that. But most writers still want that seal of approval. They still want that stamp of approval of saying, you know, a real publishing company turned my book into a, a hardcover paper printed real object because that's where you that's where your ego wants to get approval from and i think even these massive youtubers who are making you know enough money to live off of and to be rich off of in japan still want that tv seal of approval they still want to go like well i'm important because i'm big on tv and at this point tv and youtube they kind of they haven't figured out which one has more status they haven't figured out which one's on top i see 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's also like a disconnect between audiences, like you mentioned. I, I mean, just from my perspective, it feels like it might take some time before they're actually able to properly capitalize it more so on the audience base, right? Because all the money is always generated from the audience at the end of the day. So, yeah. I mean, how long do you think it would take for TV to really properly like use like YouTubers or social media influencers like in, in Japan specifically? I don't think that they should be. I, I think that, you uh-huh. know, social media influencers should be doing their own thing own and not thing. focused necessarily on whether or not um, whether or not TV in Japan wants them to be on it. Because TV in Japan, the, the way the industry works here, they've got a handful of major channels. Cable TV is not the huge niche programming industry that it is in the West. And the reason that Japanese TV, which is my bread and butter, is so dull is that they have to um, satisfy the lowest common denominator. They have to make programming that they can get as many people to watch and will appeal to as many people as possible and offend no one, which is why you've got so much food programming. It's because everybody eats. <laughs> everybody can appreciate something that that's OEC. Um, and it's why all the comedy is like lowest common denominator, slapstick, uh, very easy to understand appearance stuff, non-offensive political opinions. Um, quiz shows. Yeah. Yeah. And quiz shows. Yeah. They, they appeal to everybody. Um and so if you're looking for something really interesting or entertaining or fresh, there's a freedom to do that on these new platforms, um, even on some of the like streaming TV, like Abema TV or places like that. And if you're looking to make something interesting, I don't think I don't think TV needs to take these people who've got an online audience and force them into the TV mold, which is a very basic, simple mold. I see. I see. Or have you ever have you ever had any experience where you wanted to do something interesting and it just got shot down because it wasn't appealing to the lowest common denominator? Um, yes, yeah, I, I've had a couple of ideas that I wanted to to use for a TV project here and there. Uh, I tried to sell two different prefectures on an idea to poach tourists back in the day. Uh, I thought it's a funny play on words, but I wanted to um do a segment called like Fukuoka ni Koi or Saga ni Koi. When they were doing all these big programs about like, you know, you are Nanishi ni Nippon ni, like they'd go do like meet Chaku Shuzai. They'd go follow a tourist around for a day with a camera crew. And right. it's all in Tokyo. It's all in Osaka or Kyoto. And I thought it would be a really interesting project to go to go to Tokyo and to try to, you know, find a backpacker or find a family visiting and be like, hey, if you guys want to, you guys are going to be here for a little while come to Fukuoka, come to Saga, and we'll, you know, the TV station will pay for you to have uh, a trip around Saga or Fukuoka. And it would be um, something that you could potentially get funded by the local uh, government, you know, for you know, tourism promotion. It's something right. that would make for good TV. And I think it would be something that you would find, you know, if you went to, you know, a hostel or something like that and said, who's going to be here for a month? You know, come spend a couple of days in, in Saga on the TV show's dime. We'll take you to some cool places. We'll give you some good food and you'll be on TV. I think you would have found people who are interested um, to do that. But it was kind of so large scale in terms of uh, uh, time and budget. And there's nothing else that I'm aware of that had been done like that before. And one thing that you run up against in Japan is people going, well, we only want to do something after somebody else has already done it. And it's proven to be successful, which for me is, is, I mean, if somebody's already doing it, then what's the point of doing it? Right. Right. 
And then just in general, I mean, I, I've constantly got to censor my humor. Um, mm. Whatever the news story of the day, all, all the stuff that I think Japan by River Cruise is a great place to vent all that stuff because <laughs> I have all these moments on TV where they'll go, they'll go like, you know, this is disaster prevention week. Uh, Bobby, what do you do for disaster prevention? And I'll go, well, I don't talk shit about North Korea. Um, <laughs> and, and it's stuff that like, I have to kind of restrain myself from saying. And I think I, I've, what I've started doing is saying those jokes in rehearsal because they oh. land, like because people yeah. find them funny, but you can't say them on air because it's that, you know, somebody might be offended. Somebody might not like it. Um, there's a, a little while back in the news, there was this story of, uh, of how, 7-Eleven had owed, they did not paid everybody their overtime. There are uh -huh. years and years of like back pay in overtime that they hadn't paid and they got caught for it. And it was, they'd owed all of these people all of this money. And it was right around New Year's. And so the TV shows were reporting this news story and also talking about like the New Year's bonus. And if you're not a company employee, if you're not like a contracted employee, which I am not, you don't get paid a bonus. So some of the people who work on TV are, are company employees, like the main casters generally work for the TV station and they get a bonus. And right. then the reporters are usually freelancers and they don't get a bonus. So we were kind of like the main casters were talking about their bonus. The other reporters were going, oh, we don't get a bonus. E na, e na. And they were like, Bobby, what about you? Do you get a bonus? And I said, well, no, I don't get a bonus, but I've got a lot of back pay that seven owes me from my bite though back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm expecting to see that any day now. And it's it's those things that um, they don't like it when you kind of like try to make the news into a joke. And so I think there's there's an element where I can kind of get away to some extent with those kinds of jokes more than a regular Japanese reporter could. But also it's very much like a lot of times I think this would be funnier to a certain aspect of the audience. But it would alienate another aspect of the audience. And so you have to self-censor. I see. I mean, that, that's actually exactly what I love about your podcast, Japan by River Cruise, just because it really gives that SNL vibe, you know, kind of making fun of the news. And I mean, also talking about like River Cruises as well. Uh, one thing I, I we like previously talked about that I had no idea was a thing in Japan until I actually listened to your podcast, which yeah. was really mind blowing to me. And on my bucket list for sure right now next time i'm in japan you best bet i'm going on a river cruise <laughs> yeah yeah there's a there's a, a lot of interesting stuff in the uh japanese river cruise industry and it's really kind of funny how um a lot of times it parallels what's going on in in the japanese economy or japanese politics or japanese culture as a whole and so we try to find ways to relate that to kind of like a, a story of the week or or a topic that uh, is, is on everybody's mind that week. Right. I mean, there, there's actually like a, another lesser known fact is that we did send a, a message to be read on your guys' podcast because you guys have a little facts us on your, on your website where yeah. you can go and read a message. So, so Bobby, do you, do you remember what our message was on <laughs> Japan by a river cruise? I don't. And I don't, did we read it? Did we read it on air? Yeah, so it, it was actually a trick question because it was right around the time your website was actually not working at all for the. <laughs> okay, for yeah, the... I was gonna, I didn't want to say that because I thought it would sound like an excuse, but there was a time when we weren't getting our messages forwarded from the website, so there's a chance that I haven't seen it. 
Yeah, because I, I, I remember we we had sent it in, right? And then um, we we're listening. You're like, all right, it didn't show up this episode. It didn't show up the next episode. And then finally, <laughs> I think the episode after that, Ollie was all like, "Oh yeah, so." You you may you may have noticed that we haven't been reading our messages lately. It's, it's because it wasn't working. So I was it's, like, it's oh been, man, it's been a policy on the show that we read every message that we've gotten, and it's a testament to um, to I guess the um, the willingness on the part of our listenership to uh, to sacrifice because we're not overloaded with with messages, and it doesn't like eat up a lot of time, uh, and and that's because uh, our listenership assumingly understands that and not because you know we're not getting any messages but um but no we we have committed to reading every message that we can on air and so had we gotten it had we seen it we would have no definitely i mean we really enjoy because after that we've heard pretty much everything all the messages come through but we were just thinking you know what we'll just go say our message when we have bobby on the podcast whenever that okay, will okay, be okay. and i'm looking and, forward and, to this and, what what do we got <laughs> oh it's time right all right i I mean honestly now we put so much hype on it 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 was actually it wasn't really anything too special it it was just uh um it was it was like a keep up what you got what you guys are doing on japan by river cruise we love we love the show um from the kodakara podcast it was actually just a very simple kind of just a show of respect because we really did enjoy it. and we, we've been kind of in contact for quite a while now you know it's been yeah right it's been a, it's been quite a while yeah we've had both our podcasts going on yours obviously a little bit longer than ours but well i do remember when you first reached out to us going in like looking through um your your podcast page and your twitter page and i don't think at the time that i'd looked at your uh youtube i don't know if you were uploading them on youtube at the time but um kind of in preparation for this, I went through and looked at the YouTube page and you guys have put out a lot of content in the time since we first talked. Yeah, yeah. It's been, I mean, it's, it's just been like, I mean, one, one of course, like we, we saw podcasts like yours and we really just wanted to, I guess at the time too, that was when we first started doing our guest episodes, which was something we didn't really know too much what we wanted it to be at the time. We just, cause at the time we started our podcast because we really just love enjoy, we just enjoy talking to people, hearing about their experiences, you know, we don't want to mm. just pigeonhole ourselves into like, oh, ALT, this, ALT, you know, yeah. it's just, uh, what, what are people doing? What's going on? What are their experiences like? And we, we just wanted to, we, we kind of evolved from just talking to just getting our first guests on to who who next could we talk to? How can, how can we have a fun conversation? What haven't people heard about this person yet? You know, and yeah, it kind of just went, kept kept on going from there. And I mean, it, it's really cool now kind of going kind of a little full circle that we kind of we were talking like all this time back and now you're actually on the show and we're actually having an episode together. So it's, <laughs> it's actually really amazing to have you on here right now. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I mean, I would have come on at any other time if you'd asked me earlier as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think it's, um, we found with our show, like you said, we do, we do a lot of scripting and like, we do like a parody segment. We do, uh, the, J- the Japan by River Cruise press corps segment. And we do like a couple, like, like weekend update style news jokes. Uh, and then we always have somebody that we talk to. But even whatever we talk about is either hyper-focused on a news story of the day or hyper-focused on their area of expertise and not so much on their life in Japan. 
Right. And so what we found, uh, we put out um, some extras for our paying members. And the extras uh-huh. have gone from like, you know, five minutes of extra little, you know, information here and there about the news story to like 20 to 30 minutes of, of like us talking with that person about their life or about their week or about their experiences. And we'll go through and we'll listen to our show. And then we'll listen to the extras and we'll go. So our main podcast sounds kind of like like a segment on NPR or like on a, like a comedy radio segment. And our right. extras, which are behind the paywall, sound like a podcast. Like it's actually it's actually sometimes an easier listen or a better listen to listen to the extras. Yeah, I mean, I always like was like surprised at how you did it because you guys have like thirty around thirty minute shows, and it really sounds like a, it's, it's a great show. But I always wondered, like, man, how can you have that call? And like, I'm sure there's so much yeah. you would specifically like both you and Ollie want to talk to the guests about, you know. So I guess mm. there's the answer right there. I mean, that's that's super super cool to hear. I mean, yeah, a, a lot of it goes to the extras, and and then some of it goes to the cutting floor. Also, there's like some skill in like preparing, like you say, you did scripting. So there, there's like, I think there's some skill in like preparing something beforehand and then talking yeah. about it. Because like when we first started, me and Raza, we, we tried one episode where we we wrote an outline of all the stuff we want to talk about in really detailed. And when we were recording it, it was just like so fake because <laughs> like every every like yeah, joke and everything yeah. was just planned out. Well, I, th- I think for the main show, when we, we do our – the scripted stuff is mostly in, like, the opening. So we'll have a scripted parody advertisement, and then we'll have a scripted uh, opening menu where we say this is what we're going to be talking about on, on the show today. And each of those points that we hit, including the guest's introduction, is usually some kind of joke. Um, and I think having the comedy writing experience and then the performing experience – and I don't know if you guys can tell, but I can always tell when I listen back. Ollie has so much more stage experience than I do uh, doing comedy in English. And so I can see like a huge level, a huge difference in the level of how stilted and how kind of fake something sounds when I'm reading a joke as opposed to when he's reading a joke. And I, I think having that kind of like career experience with presenting jokes on stage makes it a little bit easier to to have that come off as real. Um, a lot of it, I think, is just about is about having confidence in it, um, making it sound natural and making it sound like you believe in it. And I've noticed it specifically in the advertisements or like the little parody clips here and there is when I do a read for an advertisement, it takes me two or three reads to to kind of fully commit to what I'm saying, whereas Ali's always fully committed from like the get-go. Um, so that anytime we have an advertisement that requires a little bit more voice acting ability, Ollie tends to be the one who reads that. I, yeah, I was actually just about to bring up the advertisements because, like you mentioned, when Ollie does the advertisements, I like fully believe it. I don't even realize it's going to be a fake advertisement, even though I know it's coming. It's going to be a fake <laughs> yeah. advertisement. He, he makes it sound like you guys got some sponsor coming through right there, and yeah. it's it's, uh, it's hilarious every single time. <laughs> well, the uh, I think the show that's up right now, we did a parody of the Japan Times Deep Dive podcast. Um, we happen to have the same guest. We had uh, a woman who writes for. Blue Bloomberg and she covers the Japan vaccine beat and right. Oscar from the Japan deep dive the Japan Times deep dive podcast did an episode about that 
and interviewed her. And he started his episode by calling his grandmother in England because his grandmother in England had gotten the vaccine. And Ollie right. was like, we've got the same topic. We've got the same guest. I've got to call my grandma. And so he has this call with his grandma where uh, he starts it exactly the same way. He calls her and she says, I'm doing a jigsaw puzzle, which is exactly what Oscar's grandma says. And but but it goes off the rails from there. And Ollie goes like, well, well oh, what are you doing a jigsaw puzzle of? And she goes, none of your business. <laughs> and it just like she hasn't had the vaccine. She doesn't plan to get the vaccine because she doesn't want Bill Gates knowing where she is. It just gets funnier and funnier. Um, but it's actually, he, he got his grandmother to do all that. And a couple of listeners have like written in or expressed the opinion that they just assumed that he was playing his grandmother as well. (laughs) And he's not, it's straight up his real grandma. It's just a a testament to how good he is that people thought that. Oh man. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I'm hearing that story makes it even, even better now. (laughs) Oh my God. That's hilarious. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember also on that same episode, it, it, I found it like, I found it hilarious when, um, <laughs> when Ollie was talking about, um, so I, I think, um, the uh, Lisa was going and talking about how, um, they wanted to go in and just push out the vaccine, right? Because people, yeah. there's a very low confidence rate. And yeah. Ollie brought out, yeah, why don't you just go and do it in maid cafes? You're going to get all the salarymen population going there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I actually wanted to bring it up in this episode when, when we did bring up this kind of episode because we wanted to bring it up too. Like, oh, I, wanted, I was going to be like, oh, according to internal sources, Ollie Horn, we have notifi- been notified that people in Japan are currently taking vaccines from maid cafes. So if you guys <laughs> do want to go get vaccinated when you are or are in Japan yeah. currently, make sure you go to your nearest maid cafe right now. But <laughs> every, every maid cafe vaccination comes with a discount coupon for your next River Cruise ticket purchase so we highly recommend it there we go there we go get that along with your omerice <laughs> <laughs> get that along with your 40 dollars omerice <laughs> add um what's it called like 20 dollars more for some ketchup spelling magic spell right there yeah oh my god <laughs> oh man yeah the <laughs> it, it reminds me back of um this one specific story I had, well, I'll, I'll tell you later. I'll tell, we'll keep it for maybe the extras, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a really funny episode actually to me. And I actually wanted to go and get your take on, like, given that Japan, of course, has a low confidence rate in this vaccine. Yeah. W- w- what do you think are, is going to be kind of like the state of the Olympics now? Because now you have, kind of a whole country that may or may not be taking this vaccine and you're trying to hold a global event or yeah. the most global event right there. Well, that was so, that was, that was one thing that was really funny um, to us when talking to Jake Edelstein uh, a few weeks back about the Suga right. administration and all the issues that he was, he was having all, all of these, these issues with governing. Um, and one of the biggest ones is that he's committed to doing the Olympics and most of the country doesn't want it to happen. You know, forget, you know, low confidence in, in vaccines. The, the right. country is just against having the Olympics. And like something like 70% of people don't want it to happen. But oh, the man. Japanese government keeps pushing ahead with it. And one of, the, one of the ideas that was really funny to me is that if you had, 
had this conversation in January of last year. What everybody was saying in January of last year is we want to make sure that the influence of the Tokyo Olympics doesn't stop in Tokyo. We want to make sure that the Tokyo Olympics and the effects of the Tokyo Olympics are spread out evenly all across the country. And that same conversation today about the idea of the effects of the Tokyo Olympics spreading out all over the country is a nightmare scenario. Um, but, but one of the things that I've heard recently, and actually in a couple weeks from now, we're going to be talking to, um, to a Japanese guy who, who is an international lawyer uh, is this idea that the contract that Tokyo has with the International Olympic Committee makes Tokyo liable for all of the expenses in the event of canceling the Olympics. Um, wow. So Tokyo is basically over a barrel. And, and that, that's the main reason that they can't say no, is because they're financially liable. And so as long as the International Olympic Committee keeps saying, we're going forward, we're going forward, Japan either has to uh, listen or decide to pay. And we'll, we'll hopefully get into this in a little bit more depth in one of our upcoming episodes. But another really funny idea to me, I haven't quite formulated it into a polished joke yet, is that, um, is that Tokyo is over a barrel. And uh, it's, it's the idea that the IOC and the guy who is, I think, the head of the IOC, his name is Dick Pound. And Dick <laughs> Pound has Tokyo bent over a barrel. <laughs> We, we tweeted about that. Um, there was some article where it was like uh, IOC chairman Dick Pound talks about, you know, Corona as the elephant in the room. And he was referring to it as the elephant in the room. And I tweeted that with a, with a joke like, no offense, but if your name is Dick Pound, you should always refer to the elephant in the room as the other elephant in the room. <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> the irony in all of this is just too insane. I can't believe yeah. this is some actual news going on. I mean, I also really you mentioned the about Tokyo kind of spreading starting in the Olympics over Japan, and I found that really funny too because you made that joke of you're starting the Tokyo Olympics marathon in Tokyo to go to Hokkaido to get out of Tokyo because no oh, one wants yeah, to be yeah. there. <laughs> well, that was that was that, that was, was a joke I did for the roast of Tokyo, the roast and that of was Tokyo, before. Yeah. That was before, before a long time ago. Now, isn't it? Yeah, that was January of last year. So that was before yeah. um, the Corona pandemic happened. Before, and the joke yeah. there was just without Corona, Tokyo hosting the Olympics was going to be a nightmare just because of how hot it was. And the idea that yeah. they'd moved the marathon to Hokkaido because not even the Olympics wants to be in Tokyo during the Olympics. Yeah, that, that aged very well, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I mean, just quickly speaking on these roast battles, though, how how did you actually get into that? How, were you invited to be on there? So i I was a regular um, I was a regular stand up performer at the venue where they do it, and I think just just by virtue of not being in Tokyo regularly and right. being a decent joke writer and a decent stage performer when when you go into kind of like a comedy scene that you're not a regular part of it's easier to get kind of a feature spot you know because you get a lot of overlap in the comedians who perform every week and you get a lot of overlap in the audience and so anytime there's somebody from out of town it makes for better sales and it makes for a better show even if you're not the best comedian in the world to be like you're going to hear fresh jokes you're going to see somebody new so I think the Tokyo stand-up community ki kind of 
had confidence in my performing abilities and um and I'd, I'd done regular appearances there and done kind of like featured spots or headlining spots or gone in for just an open mic night. And they'd be like, well, we'll, we'll treat you like um, a headliner instead of an open micer to kind of make it a more billable show. And so when they started planning um, the Tokyo Roasts, one of the guys who – the main guy who put it together, J.J. Wakrat, uh, I think I think is he, – he rates my abilities pretty highly, which I'm very grateful for. And so he always wanted to kind of get me involved with it. Uh, and I mean, from the first moment that somebody approached me, I always enjoyed watching the comedy roasts. And I've, I've always known that I've kind of had an ability for and a passion for uh, making fun of people ever since that kid killed himself in middle school. So I was like, uh, no, I like dark humor. I like the dark stuff. And so, so it was right up my alley. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, we, we've already had a casualty who was on our show. So we, we completely understand. I mean, R- John over here, the three year ALT veteran tells us about it all the time. He's like, I, I got roasted by Bobby Judo. Uh, uh, he doesn't say that. <laughs> uh, oh, man. I'm, I'm very eager to believe in my own fame. So uh, you had me hook, line and sinker with that one. But I would recommend <laughs> um, if anybody you know likes Japan, if you live in Japan, even though the Olympic jokes haven't aged so well, there's a lot of really good stuff in the Tokyo roast. Um, if you search Bobby Judo roasting Tokyo or something like that, it'll pop up. Those were some amazing jokes. I, I really did enjoy that show. Oh, man. Everyone, yeah, you guys should definitely check out <laughs> that roast. Oh, man. I mean, you, you've been on a couple of them, too. I mean, roasting California. I mean, Florida, I, Florida versus California. Yeah. That was fun. I mean, I really love that in terms of you pulled the whole Eminem trick of, oh, I'm going to roast myself a little to make the roast to California hurt <laughs> that much more. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's that's what I said. I mean, to, to tie it up with a nice little bow, we kind of talked about this at the beginning of the show with, um, you know, roasting Japan or making fun of Japan. It's it's easy to make jokes about somebody else and to roast somebody else. It's a little bit tougher and also more relatable if you figure out a way to turn that back on yourself. And so the roast of Tokyo, too, um, I think I started out just going hard, hard, hard with jokes about Tokyo and and anything bad that I could say about Tokyo. And then I kind of transitioned into things that were good about Tokyo, but presenting them in ways that you could still kind of laugh at Tokyo for it. And then I ended the whole thing by basically roasting the audience and leading into roasting myself. And the 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 climax of that whole set is this idea that if I were to live in Tokyo, I wouldn't be special anymore. I would just be like that same gaijin douchebag who lives in Tokyo. And, <laughs> and kind of like articulating those aspects of the gaijin experience in tokyo that everybody in the um in the audience could relate to and i think i knew i had won the battle when i think i I, this was a throwaway line to me but the line about i would be you know that same gaijin douchebag texting with my tinder my japanese tinder match being like (laughs) okay let's meet up in front of hachiko and at the line hachiko like two or three people in the audience just started cackling and to me, it was like, that was part of the setup, but so many people could relate to that so much that I was like, okay, okay. I'd gone in kind of afraid that trying to roast Tokyo to a room full of Tokyo would be a hostile crowd, but everybody was so willing to kind of like look at the ways that the jokes about Tokyo said things about themselves and enjoy that aspect of it. 
Yeah, I mean, you had me cackling at that line too. I'm gonna be honest. (laughs) 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 Oh man, I mean, you really like it. It kept the energy kept going up and up from there. Oh man, yeah, everyone definitely take that. Oh no, for sure. I mean, it's it's always amazing, kind of just seeing you like just go out here on all these all these different shows. I mean, how how exactly do you really even just get into stand up comedy? Just like I guess like the quick story of how that happened. So uh, I've always liked stand-up comedy. It was always on my bucket list of things to do. I kind of always thought that um, at some point in my life I'd be back in the U.S. Maybe after I'd finished my career, um, I kind of had this this uh, this dream of like retiring to New York and being a doorman in a hotel during the day, and then like going up on open mic stages at night. Just you know, when I was old and didn't have didn't need the money and didn't care about uh, having anything to lose anymore. Uh-huh. So I, I'd always kind of had this, this akogare, as they'd say in Japanese, this kind of like um, sense of, of yearning uh, towards, you know, this idealized lifestyle that I, I saw as like a stand-up comic. Um, so it was something that I always wanted to do. And then I started it because of Ali. Ali started up the Fukuoka stand-up scene and he was putting together these events and wanted to do a week-long comedy festival in Fukuoka. And as part of it, he was looking for people who could do comedy in Japanese. And he'd seen a handful of my videos and he says he, he, even though they're not straight out comedy videos, he could see a comedic sensibility in them and was like, this guy is a good storyteller. uh, He's got a good presence and he's got a comedic sensibility that he could do some of this stuff with a little punching up uh, and they would read his jokes instead of a funny story. And he, he roped me into doing the Japanese one. And after I did the Japanese one, he was like, man, you've got to do this in English. You've got to do it in English. And I started and, and I got hooked. I like it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, once um, they're going to be more prevalent, hopefully soon. I mean, can't wait to see more shows coming up here. One of our big our big uh, goals is to do a, a live Japan by River Cruise taping, which would be um, half stand-up comedy and then half like a live show. So we'd have some of our guests uh, come on and join us and then... Ali and I would kind of both be able to run our Japan stand-up uh, on either end. I think that would be that would be great. I hope you guys are able to be back in Japan when we finally get to do that. Oh, man. Well, that, that sounds amazing. We would love to be a part of that. Feel free to roast us all you want when we're in that audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, we can get up on that stage to bring out our comedic talents as well, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything to make ourselves look better. It's the narcissistic way of Japanese <laughs> podcasts, am I right? Yes. <laughs> but I guess since we do have a lot of listeners who are interested in the Japanese part, do you have maybe like some advice to them that we can get them feeling all good? We we didn't forget about you guys. Yeah. Uh, let's split it into whether or not you're in Japan or outside of Japan. If you're learning outside of Japan, um, my my biggest advice would be to create some sort of online content. You know, like I said, uh, my YouTube videos in Japanese, uh, my um, daily Yoji blog was was a, a way for me to be taking what I learned um, by studying, just by like textbook studying or just by reading uh, and force myself to, to produce output. 
And when you produce output and you put it out there, you don't have to, if you're not a narcissist like me, you don't have to put your face on YouTube. Um, you don't have to start like a public blog. There are all of these services. In my day, it was like Lang8. There are all these kind of like online message boards where people do language exchange. If you just start writing a blog or writing some sort of content in Japanese where Japanese people can see it or, you know, language learners who are further along on their journey than you are can see it, you'll get feedback, you'll get corrections. And that act of using whatever it is you've studied in a very proactive way makes you much more likely to retain it. Uh, if you are in Japan, um, I would recommend doing anything you can outside of the realm of English. You know, make friends who don't speak English. Get a part-time job um, that's not an English teaching job or a translating job. For me, I saw huge leaps in my Japanese ability when I started working at a restaurant. Uh, it kind of forced me to learn uh, polite Japanese, uh, service industry Japanese, and um, helped me learn how to flip that switch between going from polite modes to casual modes really quickly. So, And then for both people, I would say, for both groups, I would say... Um, don't just study, find something that you like to do and figure out a way to do that in Japanese. For me, it was cooking. Um, but I know all, all kinds of people who, you know, they'll join a sports club uh, with Japanese people that they can, you know, it's funny, everybody you meet here uh, who's learned to speak Japanese will be like extremely proficient in the, vo the vocabulary for a certain topic, whether it's, you know, like kimono wearing or, uh, or the entertainment industry, or cooking. It's just whatever they like to do, they'll have all the vocab for that. Um, maybe they'll have like, you know, 80% of the vocab for that, whereas you go to another area and they'll only have like 40% of the vocab. But it really does, it, it kind of keeps you connected to your motivation for learning. And it kind of reinforces the idea that you're not just studying to study. This is a language and there's a utility to it. Right. And the, the last thing I would say is uh, Ali is working on a new project. Uh, you can find it at languagehacks.xyz. And it's a really cool thing where he's interviewing like language learning experts and professional language learning experts and compiling their language learning hacks. And uh, some of them are really fascinating. Some of them are really kind of like unexpected and fascinating. One that he talked about on the show was this idea of keeping your momentum and just barreling forward and pushing through and that speed is more important than fluency. But um, there's some really good like tips for retention and tips for uh, implementing the things that you learned. So I would check that out as well. For sure. Great. I mean, love the advice, Bobby. But on that note, I think it's a good time to close our podcast here for today. So I'd just like to thank you so much for coming on here. Um, is there any place um, you would want to be found? I mean, we got Japan by River Cruise. Where else can our listeners find you, Bobby? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at Bobby Judo. And you can go to uh, Japan by River Cruise.com to get all the podcast <laughs> updates. Maybe, maybe uh, we have to start doing that for a Korekara podcast. Yeah. Let's join the Korekara podcast. One last thing, though. At the end of all our podcasts, though, Bobby, we always have the Korekara message to the listener. I guess the message for the Korekara listeners. I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. But sure. we, we usually have it as like a funny message or just, just I don't know, 
anything really but on our last episode our guest spoke of a japanese proverb and we actually really enjoyed it so i mean you, you did have a blog as uh, yeah, yeah. a fellow narcissist here um anyways but <laughs> how how what, what is what is maybe one of your favorite japanese proverbs here to end the show on here today so one of my, it's, this isn't super inspirational or anything, but it's a, a piece of advice that's helped me in this industry a lot. And it's a Japanese proverb. It's, um, Toranu tanuki no kawazanyo. Toranu tanuki no kawazanyo. And it means, uh, don't make your budget based on the skins of the tanukis you haven't caught yet. It's, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very kind of, uh, Japanese take on don't count your chickens before they hatch. Um, I guess, I don't know, at some point in Japanese history, tanuki skins were uh, uh, a lucrative industry. But it's this idea of, um, especially in the TV industry, especially in like your Japanese career, uh, nothing is certain until it's already happened, is what I've learned. So I always kind of remind myself, toranu tanuki. You can shorten it to just toranu tanuki, but uh, don't count your tanuki skins before you've skinned the tanukis. You love to hear it. And on that <laughs> note, We'll catch you on the next one, guys. Peace. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for making it to the end of the podcast. Really want to thank Bobby for coming on the show today. Make sure to check out his amazing podcast, Japan by River Cruise, with his endlessly talented co-host, Holly Horn. Also want to thank you guys once more for helping us reach the 500 subscriber mark. It's a big milestone marker for us and we can't wait to hit more with you guys. And of course, this couldn't be possible without our phenomenal patrons. Sad Boy, Izenga71, Miku, Jack, Boy No Eyebrow 4, and KH90. Again, hope you guys enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. <laughs>